0: Section nine of Coningsby or the New Generation by Benjamin Disraeli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book two. Chapter five. The Tamworth Manifesto of eighteen thirty four was an attempt to construct a party without principles. Its basis, therefore, was necessarily latitudinarianism, and, and its inevitable consequence has been political infidelity at an epoch of political perplexity and social alarm the confederation was convenient and was calculated by aggregation to encourage the timid and confused but when the perturbation was a little subsided and men began to inquire why they were banded together the difficulty of defining their purpose proved that the league however respectable was not a party the leaders indeed might profit by their eminent position to obtain power for their individual gratification, but it was impossible to secure their followers that which, after all, must be the great recompense of a political party, the putting in practice of their opinions, for they had none. There was indeed a considerable shouting about what they called conservative principles, but the awkward question naturally arose, what will you conserve? The prerogatives of the crown, provided they are not exercised, the independence of the house of lords, provided it is not asserted, the ecclesiastical estate, provided it is regulated by a commission of laymen, everything in short that is established as long as it is a phrase and not a fact. In the meantime, while forms and phrases are religiously cherished in order to make the semblance of a creed, the rule of practice is to bend to the passion or combination of the hour. Conservatism assumes in theory that everything established should be maintained, but adopts in practice that everything that is established is indefensible. To reconcile this theory and this practice, they produce what they call the best bargain, some arrangement which has no principle and no purpose except to obtain a temporary lull of agitation until the mind of the conservatives without a guide and without an aim distracted tempted and bewildered is prepared for another arrangement equally statesmanlike with the preceding one conservatism was an attempt to carry on affairs by substituting the fulfilment of the duties of office for the performance of the functions of government and to maintain this negative system by the mere influence of property reputable private conduct and what are called good connections conservatism discards prescription shrinks from principle disavows progress having rejected all respect for antiquity it offers no redress for the present and makes no preparation for the future it is obvious that for a time under favourable circumstances such a confederation might succeed. But it is equally clear that on the arrival of one of those critical conjunctures that will periodically occur in all states, and which such an unimpassioned system is even calculated ultimately to create, all power of resistance will be wanting, the barren curse of political infidelity will paralyze all action, and the conservative constitution will be discovered to be a caput mortuum end of chapter five book two chapter six in the meantime after dinner tadpole and taper who were among the guests of mr ormsby withdrew to a distant sofa out of earshot and indulged in confidential talk such a strength in debate was never before found on a treasury bench said mr tadpole the other side will be dumbfounded and what do you put our numbers at now inquired mr taper "'Would you take fifty-five for our majority?' rejoined Mr. Tadpole. "'It is not so much the tail they have as the excuse their junction will be for the moderate, sensible men to come over,' said Taper. "'Our friend Sir Everard, for example, it would settle him.' "'He is a solemn impostor. rejoined Mr. Tadpole, "'but he is a baronet and a county member, and very much looked up to by the Wesleyans. "'The other men I know—' have refused him a peerage and we might hold out judicious hopes said taper no one can do that better than you said tadpole i am apt to say too much about these things i make it a rule never to open my mouth on such subjects said taper a nod or a wink will speak volumes an affectionate pressure of the hand will sometimes do a great deal and i have promised many a peerage without committing myself by an ingenious habit of deference which cannot be mistaken by the future noble. "'I wonder what they will do with Rigby,' said Tadpole. "'He wants a good deal,' said Taper. "'I tell you what, Mr. Taper, the time has gone by when a Marquis of Monmouth was letter A, number one.' "'Very true, Mr. Tadpole. A wise man would do well now to look to the great middle class, as I said the other day to the electors of Shabbyton.' I had sooner be supported by the Wesleyans, said mr Tadpole, than by all the marquises in the peerage. At the same time, said mr Taper, Rigby is a considerable man. If we want a slashing article-pooh! said mr Tadpole, he is quite gone by. He takes three months for his slashing articles. Give me the man who can write a leader. Rigby can't write a leader. Very few can, said mr Taper. "'However, I don't think much of the press. Its power is gone by. They overdid it.' "'There is Tom Chudley,' said Tadpole. "'What is he to have?' "'Nothing, I hope,' said Taper. "'I hate him. A coxcomb, cracking his jokes and laughing at us.' "'He has done a good deal for the party, though,' said Tadpole. "'That, to be sure, is only an additional reason for throwing him over, as he is too far committed to venture to oppose us.' "'but I am afraid from something that dropped to-day "'that Sir Robert thinks he has claims.' "'We must stop them,' said Taper, growing pale. "'Fellows like Chudley, when once they get in, "'are always in one's way. "'I have no objection to young noblemen being put forward, "'for they are preferred so rapidly, "'and then their fathers die, "'that in the long run they do not practically interfere with us.' "'Well, his name was mentioned,' said Tadpole. "'There's no concealing that.' I will speak to earwig said taper he shall just drop into sir robert's ear by chance that chudley used to quiz him in the smoking-room those little bits of information do a great deal of good well i leave him to you said tadpole i am heartily with you in keeping out all fellows like chudley they are all very well for opposition but in office we don't want wits and when shall we have the answer from Nosley?" inquired taper you anticipate no possible difficulty?' "'I tell you, it is carte blanche,' replied Tadpole, four places in the cabinet, two secretaryships at the least. Do you happen to know any gentleman of your acquaintance, Mr. Taper, who refuses secretaryships of state so easily that you can for an instant doubt of the present arrangement?' "'I know none, indeed,' said Mr. Taper, with a grim smile. "'The thing is done,' said Mr. Tadpole. "'And now for our cry,' said Mr. Taper. "'It is not a cabinet for a good cry,' said Tadpole. "'But then, on the other hand, it is a cabinet that will sow dissension in the opposite ranks "'and prevent them having a good cry.' "'Ancient institutions and modern improvements, I suppose, Mr. Tadpole?' "'Ameliorations is the better word, ameliorations. "'Nobody knows exactly what it means.' "'We go strong in the church?' said Mr. Taper.' and no repeal of the malt tax. You were right, Taper, it can't be listened to for a moment. Something might be done with prerogative, said Mr. Taper, the King's constitutional choice. Not too much, replied Mr. Tadpole. It is a raw time yet for prerogative. Ah, Tadpole, said Mr. Taper, getting a little maudlin, I often think if the time should ever come when you and I should be joint secretaries to the Treasury.' we shall see we shall see all we have to do is to get into parliament work well together and keep other men down we will do our best said taper a dissolution you hold inevitable how are you and i to get into parliament if there be not one we must make it inevitable i tell you what taper the lists must prove a dissolution inevitable you understand me if the present parliament goes on where shall we be we shall have new men cropping up every session true terribly true said mr taper that we should ever live to see a tory government again we have reason to be very thankful hush said mr tadpole the time has gone by for tory governments what the country requires is a sound conservative government a sound conservative government said taper musingly i understand tory men and whig measures End of chapter six book two chapter seven amid the contentions of party the fierce struggles of ambition and the intricacies of political intrigue let us not forget our eton friends during the period which elapsed from the failure of the duke of wellington to form a government in eighteen thirty two to the failure of Sir Robert Peel to carry on a government in 1835, the boys had entered and advanced in youth. The ties of friendship, which then united several of them, had only been confirmed by continued companionship. Coningsby and Henry Sidney, and Buckhurst and Vere, were still bound together by entire sympathy, and by the affection of which sympathy is the only sure spring but their intimacies had been increased by another familiar friend there had risen up between coningsby and millbank mutual sentiments of deep and even ardent regard acquaintance had developed the superior qualities of millbank his thoughtful and inquiring mind his inflexible integrity his stern independence and yet the engaging union of extreme tenderness of heart with all this strength of character had won the good will, and often excited the admiration of Coningsby. Our hero, too, was gratified by the affectionate deference that was often shown to him by one who condescended to no other individual. He was proud of having saved the life of a member of their community whom masters and boys alike considered, and he ended by loving the being on whom he had conferred a great obligation. The friends of Coningsby— the sweet-tempered and intelligent henry Sidney, the fiery and generous buckhurst and the calm and sagacious vere had ever been favourably inclined to millbank and had they not been the example of coningsby would soon have influenced them he had obtained over his intimates the ascendant power which is the destiny of genius nor was this submission of such spirits to be held cheap although they were willing to take the colour of their minds from him they were in intellect and attainments in personal accomplishments and general character the leaders of the school an authority not to be won from five hundred high-spirited boys without the possession of great virtues and great talents as for the dominion of coningsby himself it was not limited to the immediate circle of his friends he had become the hero of eton the being of whose existence everybody was proud, and in whose career every boy took an interest. They talked of him, they quoted him, they imitated him. Fame and power are the objects of all men, even their partial fruition is gained by very few, and that too, at the expense of social pleasure, health, conscience, life, Yet what power of manhood in passionate intenseness, appealing at the same time to the subject and the votary, can rival that which is exercised by the idolized chieftain of a great public school? What fame of after days equals the rapture of celebrity that thrills the youthful poet, as in tones of rare emotion he recites his triumphant verses amid the devoted plaudits of the Flower of England? that's fame that's power real unquestioned undoubted catholic alas the schoolboy when he becomes a man finds that power even fame like everything else is an affair of party coningsby liked very much to talk politics with millbank he heard things from millbank which were new to him himself as he supposed a high tory which he was according to the revelation of the rigbys he was also sufficiently familiar with the hereditary tenets of his whig friend lord vere politics had as yet appeared to him as a struggle whether the country was to be governed by whig nobles or tory nobles and he thought it very unfortunate that he should probably have to enter life with his friends out of power and his family boroughs destroyed but in conversing with millbank he heard for the first time of influential classes in the country who were not noble and were yet determined to acquire power and although millbank's views which were of course merely caught up from his father without the intervention of his own intelligence were doubtless crude enough and were often very acutely canvassed and satisfactorily demolished by the clever prejudices of another school which conningby had at command still they were unconsciously to the recipient materials for thought and insensibly provoked in his mind a spirit of inquiry into political questions for which he had a predisposition it may be said indeed that generally among the upper boys there might be observed at this time at eton a reigning inclination for political discussion the school truly had at all times been proud of its statesmen and its parliamentary heroes but this was merely a superficial feeling in comparison with a sentiment which now first became prevalent. The great public questions that were the consequence of the reform of the House of Commons had also agitated their young hearts, and especially the controversies that were now ripe respecting the nature and character of ecclesiastical establishments wonderfully addressed themselves to their excited intelligence. They read their newspapers with a keen relish, canvassed debates and criticized speeches and although in their debating society which had been instituted more than a quarter of a century discussion on topics of the day was prohibited still by fixing on periods of our history when affairs were analogous to the present many a youthful orator contrived very effectively to reply to lord john or to refute the fallacies of his rival as the political opinions predominant in the school were what in ordinary parlance a styled tory and indeed were far better entitled to that glorious epithet than the flimsy shifts which their fathers were professing in parliament and the country the formation and the fall of sir robert peel's government had been watched by etonians with great interest and even excitement the memorable efforts which the minister himself made, supported only by the silent votes of his numerous adherents, and contending alone against the multiplied assaults of his able and determined foes, with a spirit equal to the great occasion, and with resources of parliamentary contest which seemed to increase with every exigency, these great and unsupported struggles alone were calculated to gain the sympathy of youthful and generous spirits the assault on the revenues of the church the subsequent crusade against the house of lords the display of intellect and courage exhibited by lord lyndhurst in that assembly when all seemed cowed and faint-hearted all these were incidents or personal traits apt to stir the passions and create in breasts not yet schooled to repress emotion a sentiment even of enthusiasm it is the personal that interests mankind that fires their imagination and wins their hearts a cause is a great abstraction and fit only for students embodied in a party it stirs men to action but place at the head of that party a leader who can inspire enthusiasm like a man's the world divine faculty rare and incomparable privilege a parliamentary leader who possesses it doubles his majority and he who has it not may shroud himself in artificial reserve and study with undignified arrogance and awkward haughtiness, but he will nevertheless be as far from controlling the spirit as from captivating the hearts of his sullen followers. However, notwithstanding this general feeling at Eton in eighteen thirty five in favour of conservative principles, which was in fact nothing more than a confused and mingled sympathy with some great political truths which were at the bottom of every boy's heart but nowhere else and with the personal achievements and distinction of the chieftains of the party when all this hubbub had subsided and retrospection in the course of a year had exercised its moralizing influence over the more thoughtful part of the nation inquiries at first faint and unpretending and confined indeed for a long period to limited though inquisitive circles began gently to circulate what conservative principles were these inquiries urged indeed with a sort of hesitating scepticism early reached eton they came no doubt from the universities they were of a character however far too subtle and refined to exercise any immediate influence over the minds of youth to pursue them required previous knowledge and habitual thought. They were not yet publicly prosecuted by any school of politicians or any section of the public press. They had not a local habitation or a name. They were whispered in conversation by a few. A tutor would speak of them in an esoteric vein to a favoured pupil, in whose abilities he had confidence, and whose future position in life would afford him the opportunity of influencing opinion among others they fell upon the ear of coningsby they were addressed to a mind which was prepared for such researches there is a library at eton formed by the boys and governed by the boys one of those free institutions which are the just pride of that noble school which shows the capacity of the boys for self-government and which has sprung from the large freedom that has been wisely conceded them the prudence of which confidence has been proved by their rarely abusing it. This library has been formed by subscriptions of the present, and still more by the gifts of old Etonians. Among the honoured names of these donors may be remarked those of the Grenvilles and Lord Wellesley. Nor should we forget George the Fourth, who enriched the collection with a magnificent copy of the Delphin Classics. The institution is governed by six directors the three first Colleges, and the three first Opidens, for the time being, and the subscribers are limited to the one hundred senior members of the School. It is only to be regretted that the collection is not so extensive as it is interesting in choice. Perhaps its existence is not so generally known as it deserves to be one would think that every eton man would be as proud of his name being registered as a donor in the catalogue of this library as a venetian of his name being inscribed in the golden book indeed an old etonian who still remembers with tenderness the sacred scene of youth could scarcely do better than build a gothic apartment for the reception of the collection it cannot be doubted that the provost and fellows would be gratified in granting a piece of ground for the purpose. Great were the obligations of Coningsby to this Eton library. It introduced him to that historic lore, that accumulation of facts and incidents illustrative of political conduct, for which he had imbibed an early relish his study was especially directed to the annals of his own country in which youth and not youth alone is frequently so deficient this collection could afford him clarendon and burnet and the authentic volumes of cox these were rich materials for one anxious to be versed in the great parliamentary story of his country during the last year of his stay at eton when he had completed his eighteenth year coningsby led a more retired life than previously he read much and pondered with all the pride of acquisition over his increasing knowledge and now the hour has come when this youth is to be launched into a world more vast than that in which he has hitherto sojourned yet for which this microcosm has been no ill preparation he will become more wise will he remain as generous his ambition may be as great will it be as noble what, indeed, is to be the future of this existence that is now to be sent forth into that great aggregate of entities? Is it an ordinary organisation that will jostle among the crowd and be jostled? Is it a finer temperament, susceptible of receiving the impressions and imbibing the inspirations of superior, yet sympathising spirits? Or is it a primordial and creative mind, one that will say to his fellows, behold god has given me thought i have discovered truth and you shall believe the night before coningsby left eton alone in his room before he retired to rest he opened the lattice and looked for the last time upon the landscape before him the stately keep of windsor the bowery meads of eton soft in the summer moon and still in the summer night he gazed upon them, his countenance had none of the exultation that, under such circumstances, might have been distinguished a more careless glance, eager for fancied emancipation and passionate for a novel existence. Its expression was serious, even sad, and he covered his brow with his hand. End of chapter Seven, end of Book Two.